0: It is so good to see you guys all again. I hope that you guys have had a good first month of classes. It's been so incredible to get to meet all of you guys and to really see our Chi Alpha family for this school year start to form and just to see what God is going to do this year. If this is your first time with us, my name is Derek and I'm the director of Chi Alpha. I'd love the chance to meet you after service if we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet. I wanna give you some background. So last week I told you that I have terrible middle school relational history. There's another thing you need to learn about me. I'm also not a very like handy person. You'll hear some stories about that. I have no technical skills, fixing things, like being a man, that is not my strong suit whatsoever. None of those things are up my wheelhouse. I'd love to read you a book, but fix anything for you, I cannot do that very well. And see Taylor, my wife and I, we bought a house a few years ago. And when you buy a house, you have to learn a lot of skills. You have to learn how to fix things and how to kind of grow up a little bit. And we bought our house in the middle of winter, so one of these first skills I had to learn was how to use a snowblower. My father-in-law gave us a snowblower. He told us he'd give us a snowblower. And I was pretty pumped when he said, I'm like, what's up? I'm not going to have to shovel. I'm not going to be one of those chumps. So when you live in a house and you look around, like you judge your neighbors for how they take care of your yard, or at least they all judge me because I'm really bad at it. So then I'm I'm like, finally, I'm going to be the one who's going to have a good driveway. So he says, I've got this nice snowblower for you. I go to pick it up, and it's literally, I think, was made in the 1700s. That's how old it was. It was ancient, but it was better than nothing. So he tells me some things. He starts talking like a man, like, yeah, smart spark plugs, and like, you got to start it, and put oil in it, and there's these knobs that do things, and there's engine, and like, hang on. I'm like, I've got no clue what he's saying, but I'm nodding, like, yes, I completely understand what you're saying, because you're my father-in-law. I need to impress you. I am also a man. Thank you. Yes, I can grow a mustache. No, I can't grow a mustache, but anyways, I just nod my head and act like I knew what was going on. So we get home. I'm like, okay, this can't be that hard. I can figure this out, and I don't know how to start it. So I'm like, this should be easy. I'm a There's gotta be a manual online, right? No, this thing was invented before the internet. So there is no manual for this bad boy online. So I can't find that. So I just start pressing buttons, turning knobs, throwing oil in it, calling my dad, like fix me. He's like, bro, I don't even know how to do it. That thing's ancient. And nothing is working. Taylor comes out of our house, like, honey, can I help? I'm like, no, get back. I'm a man. I'll figure this out on my own. Which was a lie. But if I'm honest with you guys, I was just a little bit lost. As I sat there praying over that snowblower, like, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, start snowblower, I just really wanted someone, not Taylor, but someone else to come and help me. I wanted direction and guidance, and eventually we got it started, so I was feeling pretty good with myself, but then I didn't know how to use it, because I'd never used a snowblower before, so I'm like pushing it down my driveway, it's not working, and I remember this very clearly, I remember slipping and like sliding down my driveway. And as I slid down my driveway, contemplating life and my decisions to buy a house and things like that, I just started to contemplate and think, Lord, will you please teach me how to be a man? I need to learn this before I die. And I just went and bought a new snowblower that was nicer, so it's much easier to work. But anyways <laughs> I think if we're honest, we can all feel this way sometimes. Not that we want to learn how to be a man, but we have no idea what we're doing sometimes. We just want direction. See, we wander aimlessly through life, and we want to know how do I best live this life. We want guidance. We want answers to our questions. We don't want to be lost. We want to do life right. I think no one wants to waste their life. I think everyone has good motivations and good, or good intentions. They want to do right, yet they just might not know how. So I think we have a need inside of us to figure out how to live, but we just don't know how to fill that need. And if I'm honest, I don't think that's fair. I think we have a right See, I think we have a right to know how to best live our life. I actually think it's our birthright. It's a very valuable birthright. And we are not the only ones who have a valuable birthright. Back in the Old Testament, which is the time before Jesus, there's a story of two brothers. These brothers, their father's name is Isaac, and Isaac is the child of Abraham. I'm going to give you a little family line here. So Abraham's first. He's the grandfather. And God promised Abraham that he was going to create a great nation from his family. He says, Abraham, you are actually going to be a father of the people of God. So then, when he died, his son kind of got to accept that mantle and be the next kind of have that right to be a father of the family of the people of God. See, this inheritance that his son Isaac had had incredible value, not only monetarily, they were also like wealthy, but value to God. And so, Isaac has this inheritance of fathering the people of God, and then he goes on to have two of his own sons the first son being Esau, and the next son being Jacob. So naturally, as the firstborn, Esau was the rightful person to inherit what his father had built. His inheritance was to be a father of the people of God. He had a calling to lead his family and to ultimately lead a nation, actually, that went on to be the nation of Israel. He had a right to carry on the promises of God and to have a huge role for God in our world. God had a huge plan for this family, and Esau was given the right to lead it. That was his birthright. In Genesis chapter 25 verses 29 through 44, 34, we read about what Esau does with his incredible birthright of leading the family of God. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now, So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way and then Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, thank you for what you're gonna do tonight, God. I pray that you speak to us through the word, speak to us through the Bible, God. We love you so much, amen. Esau had an incredible birthright. He had a future legacy that could change the world and accomplish great things for God, yet he sells this right For a bowl of stew. And I think our birthright is very similar to Esau's. See, Esau's birthright was his father's kingdom. So is ours. Our birthright is the kingdom of God. If you follow Jesus, follow God, you are a son or daughter of God, making God your father, and so you have the birthright to his kingdom. Jesus Christ was God in human flesh. He came to earth not only to die for our sins, but also to show us, like, the character of God, to show us what God was like, and to show us how we should live while we're on earth. That was Jesus' job. Because we want to know how to live, right? We want direction, just like I said in the beginning, and Jesus wants to tell us how. So we want to know how to live, and then Jesus tells us how. When people ask Jesus, How do we live this life? Jesus says, Live in the kingdom of God. Basically, Live the way Jesus tells you to. That's living in the kingdom of God. Because God designed the universe, so theoretically, he knows how it's supposed to function. If God designed the universe, theoretically, he knows the best way to live in this universe. Imagine someone creates a game. They know how to win, right? They created it. So living the way Jesus tells us to it's us actually living the way we were naturally designed to live. Doing and obeying God should be natural. Because we were designed to live in the kingdom of God, not our own kingdom. E. Stanley Jones, who is a very old, very dead guy, says this You are built to obey the laws of the kingdom. If we obey the laws written within us, we are fulfilled. If we go against those laws, we are frustrated. And if we persist, we are broken. That is why there is so much brokenness in our world. We aren't using our birthright. We're not living the way we are supposed to. See, God designed us to live the way that God wants us to live, and he's smarter than us. So that's why evil comes into this world, not because God brought evil in and God created an imperfect world. No, God created the world perfect, but we choose to not live by the game rules that he gives us. We choose not to follow the design that he's given us, which has screwed everything up. And when we choose evil over good, or when we choose anything over God, we often think we're choosing the easy way, but just because something is instant does not mean it's easy. Jones goes on to say the Christian way is actually not the hard way. It is working with the universe. It's working the way we were designed. Evil is the hard way. That's working against the universe. So to sum this whole idea up, our birthright is living in the kingdom of God, which means our birthright is to live the way Jesus instructs us to in the Bible. And if we live that way, we are living the way we are naturally designed to live. However, we often, like Esau, sell this birthright for a bowl of stew. So what is our bowl of stew? So for Esau, he was hungry, and he needed to be filled, right? He wanted to quench his hunger. So he tries to manufacture a solution. He wants to find a way to be filled up, so he says, give me your stew. He thinks that's going to lead to an immediate solution to his problem. He thought a bowl of stew would solve all of his problems. But for us, we try to solve our problems by doing things our own way. We try to find our own ways of fulfilling like, deep internal longings. And usually, we don't always choose the best solution. We just choose what's the most immediate solution or the most obvious solution to our problems. We've talked a lot about this in the last couple weeks, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but practically what this looks like is we have a problem like loneliness and depression, and we think the way we can solve that problem is to just suppress our feelings through things like drugs or alcohol. Or maybe we have a problem if we think our value only comes from our achievement, and we think that's the only way we're loved. So to solve that problem, instead of like working on our identity being placed as a son or daughter of Jesus, we instead just throw our everything into our schoolwork, into music, into our sports, something to where we can get value from the people around us because we think that's the only way we'll be loved. Or maybe the problem going on inside of us is we feel lonely and we don't have friends. And so we see people around us who go out and party, and they seem to be having friends and having fun, and that seems quick and easy, so we fill this inner longing for community with the quick, easy solution of going to the hill on Friday nights. Or maybe we have a deep longing for God to love us And we think the only way to fill that longing is to earn God's love. And the way we think we can earn God's love is by moral perfection. So instead of pursuing intimacy with Jesus, we take the more immediately gratifying route. Because when we do things right, we get to feel good about ourselves. So we put all of our worth in our moral perfection instead of focusing on our heart change and our motivations and our intimacy with God. We think doing the right things will fill this longing when actually being with Jesus is what will fill that longing. See, we choose to fulfill inner longings in us in the ways the world tells us to, and we think that will lead us to happiness. We think the only way we'll be happy is if we get a boyfriend or girlfriend, if we get straight A's, if we live the college lifestyle like everyone around us. We're in this world of immediate gratification, also. Anything that takes time is frowned upon. So we have to go for the easy route, right? We've got two-day shipping, which has turned to three- to five-day shipping, which is really frustrating, but anyways, that's my qualm against Amazon. Two-day shipping, mobile order, pickup, skip skip-the-line, fast-food kind of mentality. And then I'm telling you that we should follow the way of Jesus, which takes time. Sometimes those things don't line up. We are told that taking the easy route, taking the immediately gratifying route, won't cost us anything. That will be fine. We can fix it later. But we are actually mistaken. When we try to find our satisfaction in the world around us, when we're choosing to just eat the bowl of stew, we're selling our birthright. As Esau asked Jacob for a bowl of stew, Jacob tells him it's going to cost you something, your birthright. And remember, our birthright is living in the kingdom of God, living the way Jesus designed us to live And when we choose our stew over our birthright, we're really choosing our way over God's way. So effectively, what we're saying is that we are smarter than God. So why does God tell us how to live? Why does Jesus give instructions in the Bible? Why do we have direction from God? Is it so that God can feel in control? Does God just want to keep us in line so he can feel good about himself? Or does he need our obedience so he feels like a good king? I think not. See, God tells us how to live because God loves us and God knows best. If you believe in God in here, you most likely believe that God is what we will call all-knowing. What that means is you probably think God is like the smartest being in the universe. You probably think God's smarter than you. On top of that, if you follow Jesus, you probably believe that God loves you because God sent his son Jesus to come and die for your sins. The thing that God loved most In the universe, he gave up for you, which probably shows that God loves you. So if you are a Jesus follower who believes in God, you probably think that God is all-knowing and all-loving. So if God is all-knowing, that means he is smarter than us. And if God is all-loving, it means he cares more about us than we care about ourselves. So logically speaking, obeying God is just obeying the person who knows what is best and cares the most about us. When God instructs us how to live, He's doing so because He wants the best outcome for you, not because he has a power trip. So then when we don't obey the person who is smarter than us and loves us more than we love ourselves, that's actually quite illogical. If he wants what's best for me and he's smarter than me, I should probably listen to him. So basically, when Jesus tells us that you should live in the kingdom of God, what he's saying, he's saying is life is a test. But here's the answer key. He says, if you do this, if you obey me, you will succeed. So when we choose to live life our own way or not listen to God, it is basically like us having a professor who gives us the answers to our next test. And then we go up to our professor and say, thank you so much, but I don't need that. I actually know how to, solve your, or how to pass your class Thank you for advice. I know better than you do on how to pass your own class. That doesn't quite add up to me. When we choose to live life our own way, we choose our stew over our birthright, we're choosing to go against logic. Growing up, my family and I, we went to church, which meant I knew that some things in life were known as sinful See, a lot of times, children who grow up in the church, we are told not to do things like don't have sex before marriage, don't cuss, or at least say the F word, don't do that. You can say the other ones once in a while. But then they'll say also, like, don't give in to drugs and alcohol. We're taught that, right? We're taught the dangers of drunkenness, things like that. However, I'm honest with you, even though I grew up in the church, my parents never once sat me down and told me not to drink. I think part of this is because if you go up my family tree, like my family history, there's actually a theme of alcoholism all throughout it. And I have four older siblings who I love dearly, but when my older siblings got to high school, they all started to drink and party. So there's five of us total, and my brother, who is closest to me in age, is actually Pastor Daniel, our pastor at Scent Church. And we were the ones who grew up going to youth group. And so it seemed to me that my brother and I, we had a commitment that when we got older and got to high school, we would not give into the party lifestyle. We would not drink because that's not what God wants of us, and we don't want God to be mad at us, so we're not going to do those wrong things. However, I think only one of us knew that agreement (laughs) because when my older brother Daniel got to high school, he started to do the same things my older brother did. He started to party and smoke and drink and do things with girls. And then I was a little confused. I'm like, I thought we just didn't do those things because then God would be mad at us. We're not supposed to. So that motivation of just like following God's laws because they're God's laws was kind of gone because big brother wasn't doing it. However, as I watched him throughout high school, I started to notice something. The more and more my brother Daniel partied, the less happy he seemed to be, the more broken he seemed to become. And then I remember this moment very clearly. I remember one Saturday morning, I hear my brother weeping in his room, crying out to God. He's completely broken. He says he's distant from God and he feels empty inside. See, my brother tried to find fulfillment through the world and it seemed to be coming up short. And that Saturday morning, as I eavesdropped outside his door, which I certainly did, my ear was firmly planted right outside of his door, listening to everything he was saying, I found a new motivation to not go out and party and drink. See, that motivation was I was given perspective. I got to see reality. I saw the reality of when my older brother chose to go party and pursue the world instead of pursuing God, the world seemed to come up short. My motivation for not partying turned from I shouldn't do that because God will be mad at me to I shouldn't do that because my older brother tried and it made him feel empty, broken, and distant from God, and I don't want to feel like that. That day, my older brother's life was turned completely upside down, he started running after God, which gave me more perspective because I saw as he ran after God instead of the world, he started to be more fulfilled. Not only was he more holy, he was also more satisfied. My older brother went from broken inside to made whole because of King Jesus, and that gave me perspective, I am so thankful for that experience because it showed me the reality of life with and without God. It showed me that God, when he tells us what to do, might just be smarter than me. Because when Daniel obeyed God, he seemed to be more fulfilled. When he disobeyed God, he seemed to be broken. I shouldn't just follow God because I'm supposed to. See, I should follow God because now I've got a better perspective. Something you're going to hear a lot around here is this phrase. God's laws are not motivation for obedience but descriptions of reality from an infinite perspective. It's a lot of words, so I'll explain it. This means we are not motivated to follow God simply because we're supposed to. No, we listen to God because God has a better perspective than us, because God is smarter than us. God's laws are not just based on some theoretical what could happen. No, God's laws are based on reality. God has a better perspective than us. He is outside of time and he sees how things work and how things don't work. So when he tells us what to do because he loves us enough, we should listen because he is smarter than us. He created the game so he knows how to play it. I think sometimes we act like God's laws are just theory. I don't think anyone would ever say this, but when we disobey God, we are saying, I know better than you, God. And we're saying, God, I don't think you know what's best for me which is quite a bold claim. I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that someone climbs to the top of a 100-story building, and before they get ready to jump off, they say, I promise you, I will land safely because I can fly. And the law of gravity is just theory. That is not the reality. We have no proof, so I will just jump off. We'd call them crazy, right? Because reality tells us that if anyone jumps off a 100-story building, They will not fly to safety. When we disregard reality, we are disregarding sanity. And that is precisely the amount of judgment we show when we willingly disobey God. We are disregarding what is sane. And Jesus is not saying, if you don't obey me, I won't love you. That's not what Jesus is after. No, Jesus is saying that if you love me, then you'll trust me. And if you trust me, you'll trust that I know best. And if you think that I know best, then you'll obey him. Because God has better perspective than us. God understands reality better than us. Back in 1976, three men gathered to start a company. Their names were Steve, Steve, And Ronald, there's two Steves, a little confusing. But they set out to change the world with this company. They had huge dreams. Steve and Steve, these guys are both young. They're broke, but they're really creative. And they got to own most of the company because it was mostly their ideas. And they actually bring in the third guy, Ronald, because Ronald was an adult. And they wanted someone mature in the room. Ronald was brought in to do the legal work, to do the paperwork, to make sure they don't do anything stupid. And for his efforts, he was given 10% of that company. Eventually, Ronald starts to get a little nervous. He's like, the guys I'm working with are actually kind of insane. And then he thinks, well, see, if our company goes under, they don't have any assets. So the government can't take anything from them. But I have a house, and I have a family, and I have assets. So if the company goes under, then I'll lose everything. So Ronald gets freaked out. And Ronald decides he's going to sell his shares. So he sells 10% of this company back to Steve and Steve for $800. $800. See, what Ronald did not understand was the potential value of this company. Ronald did not understand how much this company was worth. Ronald did not know that this company would go on to become the biggest tech empire in the history of the planet. See, that company was Apple. And the 10% stake in Apple that Ronald sold for $800 would now be worth $95 billion. Ronald, he sold his highest value possession for next to nothing. Nothing. He didn't know the value of apple, so he sold the stake in it. So going back to our story, why does Esau sell his birthright? He sells it because he didn't see its value. He thought the stew was more valuable than his birthright. Just like often we think doing things our own way, fulfilling our immediate desires, is more valuable than God. Esau says in verse 32, of what use is a birthright to me? Clearly, he does not think his birthright's valuable. In the most basic sense, Esau's birthright was his connection to his father. See, his father built this inheritance. He built his empire. And his birthright, Esau's birthright was his ticket to receiving what his father had built, to receiving his father's legacy. Jacob and Esau, the two brothers, they didn't build the empire. They did nothing for their inheritance. It was not their work. It was their father's work. So by Esau not valuing his birthright, what that tells me is Esau did not value his father. His father's legacy in life work was worth less to him than a bowl of stew. Just like Esau, when we sell our birthright of living in the kingdom of God for a bowl of stew, of living like the people around us, living a life of sin and doing whatever we want, we are saying that our father does not have value. There's a college student who's running late to class. And so he decides to take a shortcut Been there, right? None of you have been late to class yet, right? You're like, yeah, because I don't go to class. Ha-ha, joke's on you. Anyways. (laughs) Anyways, the student's running late to class. And there's a shortcut through this field on his way to class. And this field is for sale. As he's running through this field, he trips over this small pointy object. So he goes to kick the pointy object out of anger, which makes no sense, really, because that'll just hurt his foot. But as he gets there, he sees that there might be more to the object than meets the eye. So he gets down, and he starts digging around, and he gets out the box, and he opens it up, and he can't really get it all the way out, so he just goes in there, feels around, and he feels some things that feel like stones, kind of feel like rocks. So he picks one out, he dusts it off, cleans it up, he recognizes that this is a diamond. And this diamond's like the size of a small stone. This might have some value. So he skips class, just like any good college student would, and he goes to the nearest jeweler. And he says, so what is this diamond worth? And the jeweler's pretty impressed. He's like, you're 19, how'd you get that? He's like, that diamond is actually worth $1,500. The college student's excited, so he exchanges his diamond for the $1,500. And then he starts to think something, though. He's like, that one small diamond was worth that much, I wonder how much the rest of the box is worth. So he runs back to class, or excuse me, not to class. He runs back to his field. He skipped class. He runs back to this field, and he goes back to his box. He gets it again, and he starts trying to open it up, and he realizes there's a lot of stones in here, and he finds the biggest one possible, and he takes it out, he cleans it up, and he runs back to the jeweler, and the jeweler, as soon as he walks in, his jaw drops. And the college student's excited. She comes up and like, so how much is this one worth? And the jeweler does not make eye contact with the student, but instead keeps staring at the stone. And he grabs it, and without breaking eye contact, he says, this is the largest ruby I've ever seen in my entire life. The student asks, how much is this worth? He starts to laugh at him. He says, this is worth more than you and I could ever imagine. Student's pretty pumped. So he takes his Ruby back, he's like, I'm not gonna sell it to you because you don't even know how much it's worth. So he goes back to this, instead of going back to the field though, he runs back to his apartment. And he goes to his apartment, and he starts taking his TV off the wall. He grabs his Xbox and all his video games, everything he owns, and he starts taking pictures of them and putting them on Facebook Marketplace. He's got a roommate, he's a little freaked out, he's like, bro, why are you selling our stuff right now? And the roommate's like, what are you doing? And the student responds says, well I'm going to sell everything we have and go buy that field that's for sale next to campus the roommate of course thinks he's crazy because what the roommate does not recognize is that what's inside that field is the most valuable treasure in the world see selling everything that the student had to buy that field is actually the most rational thing the student could ever do because see the student found something of like infinite value in those stones Which made the little TV and Xbox he owned Absolutely worthless in comparison The student sells the little treasure he could keep So then he could have so much that he could never lose So why should we choose our birthright over stew? Why should we live in the kingdom of God Over the kingdom of our own wants and our own desires? Why should we let God run our lives? Well because he's more valuable than us He's actually more valuable than anything we have. See, Jesus, Jesus is the treasure in that field. Jesus has intrinsic value. Meaning Jesus is valuable all in himself. And when we come across something with intrinsic value, we should choose it above everything else. When we come across something that is rare, it has more value, right? That is why my Honda Civic is nowhere near as valuable as a Lamborghini Reventon, because Honda Civics are made like every six seconds, but there are only 13 Lamborghini Reventons in the entire planet, so it has more value. When we come across something of beauty, it has value. That is why Taylor and I's trip to Paris this past summer was significantly more expensive than our trip to Stockton, Missouri two years before that. Paris is slightly more beautiful than Stockton, Missouri when so we come across something of purity, it also has more value. And that is why my fake Birkenstocks that are worth $30 are nothing compared to Taylor's real Birkenstocks, which drained her bank account when she was a senior in high school and bought them. They're more pure, so they're more valuable. And finally, when we come across something of power, it has more value. That is why you can get the Least powerful MacBook Air for $1,000, but the most powerful MacBook Pros and it costs you 3 4 or $5,000 because it has more power. See, rarity, beauty, purity, and power, those things show us what has value. And our Lord, Jesus, He doesn't do those things. Jesus doesn't do pure things or do powerful things or do rare things. Jesus doesn't have to go to like some separate source in order to get these things. No, Jesus is simply those things. Jesus is rare and beautiful and pure and powerful. Jesus is the treasure in the field because Jesus has more value. Jesus is rare. E. Stanley Jones says that every other religion suggests how evil came into the world. Christianity is the only religion where God says he came to take evil out. In other religions, their Messiah, their leader, when they die, they stayed that way. But when our God died, he came back. Jesus is beautiful. Jesus did not let social outcasts go unloved. love. Jesus was a friend of sinners and he loved people who literally spat in his face. Jesus is pure. He remains sinless in a world full of sin. He did not give into the same temptations that we give into every single day. And Jesus is powerful. Jesus healed the sick. He raised the dead and nothing was impossible with King Jesus. See, Jesus does not do valuable things. No, Jesus is just value. His value then obligates the obedience of our lives. His value obligates us to choose him every time. His value obligates us to put him first. See, Jesus has a right to your life, not because of what he's done, but Jesus has a right to your life because of who he is. Jesus is more valuable than anything else you've got. And that's why we should choose our birthright over stew. We can't sell our birthright because our birthright's the most valuable thing in the universe. Our birthright has infinite value. That's the main idea tonight, that our birthright has infinite value. It cannot be measured. Living in the kingdom of God, living the way Jesus instructed us to, and living a godly life has so much value compared to anything else we've got. In this whole semester, we're gonna focus on this idea of birthright of us not selling our birthright for things that are less valuable. And this month, we started by talking about how our birthright is actually a right to royalty, that we have the rights to become a son or daughter of God, and then to live in his kingdom, to live the way God designed us to live and trust a God that's smarter than us. And this sounds great, right? Right, I should obey God, he's smarter than me. He's valuable, he's like a stone, that's cool. Jesus is worth obeying. Jesus loves me. He's my father in heaven. I get to trust him. I'm going to be a prince or princess in the kingdom, whatever the heck that means. And even though this sounds a little strange, it's also quite beautiful. And this is great, but if you follow Jesus for more than 30 seconds, you know that even though we know it's logical to obey God, and even though we know Jesus loves us, for some reason we, kept, we keep choosing other things. We keep falling short, we keep making mistakes, and we keep selling our valuable birthright for a bowl of stew. In my own life, the most prominent example of this was during my senior year of high school. I talked about this the very first Kai service. But during my senior year, I got into my first real romantic relationship, and we crossed a ton of sexual boundaries. See a part of our birthright of living in the kingdom of God is purity and the right to experience sexual intimacy first and only in marriage. Jesus designed us to only have sexual intimacy with one person and to start doing that on our wedding night. That's the best way for us to live. However, I sold that birthright for the bowl of stew of sexual pleasure before marriage with someone who was not and did not become my spouse. My wife, Taylor, on the other hand, She wasn't perfect, but she was significantly more pure than I was before marriage. She did not go nearly as far as I ever did. And there came a time when I had to tell Taylor what I had done. And I had to tell her all my junk and all the lines I had crossed. And if I'm honest, I was worried. I was worried she'd be mad at me. I was worried she would dump me. She would never forgive me. But instead, the moment I told her everything, she forgave me instantly. She said she still loved me. She said that my past did not change her view of me. And she showered me with grace, even though I sold really our birthright for our marriage. And that is just a glimpse of the grace Jesus shows us. We constantly sell our birthright for stew. We constantly choose the world over Jesus. Yet, every time, Jesus keeps showing us more and more mercy. When we sin, when we sell our birthright, we should not be able to get it back. We should be separated from God. We should be destined for death. And see, we're not the only ones with a birthright. Jesus had one too. Jesus was the literal son of God. Jesus was perfect, and the birthright of perfection is life for eternity. See, Jesus' birthright was to escape death, yet, Jesus gave up his birthright so we could keep ours. Jesus died on a cross to give us the ability to receive grace and the rights to God. We sell our birthright every time we sin, but Jesus provides a way for us to get it back through his death on the cross. And then he rose from the dead, defeating death once and for all. Now we can spend eternity in God's kingdom. Maybe you're here tonight, and if you're honest, you've been selling your birthright for bowls of stew. You've been pursuing whatever you want. You haven't been trusting God. You've not been listening to or obeying God. The beauty is tonight you have an opportunity. You get to reclaim your birthright. It's not gone. You have not ran too far from God. However, and here's my challenge for us tonight. If you do truly trust Jesus, it's also time for you to stop selling your birthright for a bowl of stew. It's time if you follow Jesus to start trusting him with your life, to start living the way he's prescribed because you think that God is not only more valuable than you, he's also more intelligent than you. And only then, only when we choose our birthright and live the way God asks us to, only then do we get to live a life of royalty. Going back to our story one more time, Esau, he sold his birthright to his little brother Jacob. We haven't talked about Jacob a whole lot. But Jacob, he goes on to become one of the most important people in all of history. God is literally described as the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob. Jacob leaves a powerful legacy. Jacob changes the world. Jesus himself is born in the family line of Jacob. Jacob becomes a father of the people of God. Jacob actually has his name changed from Jacob to Israel which is where we get the country of Israel. And that name Israel, it means triumphant with God. So when we live into our birthright, when we claim what God has provided for us, we become triumphant with God. We conquer our sins. We conquer the world around us. We are triumphant with God. And as you start this school year, you are all faced with a choice. Are you going to live for something that matters? Will you obey Jesus? Will you claim your birthright and devote your time in college to knowing Jesus and making him known on our campus or will you sell your birthright for a bowl of stew? For personal glory, for doing what's immediately satisfying, for doing whatever you want in a moment. The choice is yours. Here's the thing, guys. I love you all so much already. I love this group so much. So no matter if you decide to devote your time in college to Jesus or not, I'm still gonna love you and Jesus is still gonna love you But I also love you too much to watch you sell what is of the utmost value for something that is worthless. Because although I'm not that much older than you, I do have a little bit of perspective. I was a college student not that long ago. And I know what it's like to devote your time in college not to being perfect, but to making Jesus known. And I know that when I decided to jump into Chi Alpha and to make discipling other students, make that my aim in college, I know that I've never looked back. I know that I got to help people get a little bit closer to Jesus. And I know it's the best thing I've ever done. See, I know that if you'll do the same, if you'll devote your time in college to King Jesus, if you will claim your birthright, you will never regret it. Chi Alpha, Jesus is looking at all of you. And he's asking you, are you going to claim your birthright and devote your time in college to King Jesus? He's asking you that. And see, if you are willing, I actually have a challenge for you all tonight. So what I'm going to do is when I'm done, if you want to claim your birthright as a child of God and devote your time in college to King Jesus, what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to come up here to the front. You can kneel, you can sit, you can stand, you can do whatever you want, but I'm going to ask you to get out of your seats when I'm done and to move as a signal to God that you are claiming your birthright and that you're giving your time in college to Jesus. And then as we worship and as we sing a song to God, I'm going to ask you to cry out to God and to tell him you are all in, that he gets to take it all. You are all his that whatever God wants for your time in college, you are going to do it. By you stepping out of your seat, you are signaling, God, I'm claiming my birthright and I'm never selling it for a ball of When you walk up here, you are saying I'm all in. You are saying I'm a son or daughter of King Jesus. You are saying that I am royalty and I'm gonna start living like it. So I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna jump into a song and as soon as I'm done praying, I'm gonna ask you to come up here in the front and get with Jesus. Jesus, we love you so much. Jesus, thank you for giving us access to a birthright, God. Thank you, King Jesus, for being valuable for being more valuable than anything else, God. I pray for Chi Alpha 2022, 2023, God. I pray that this group of students is gonna be a world-changing group of students, King Jesus. I pray that future missionaries and future Chi Alpha directors and future pastors and future mothers and fathers are gonna be risen up from this generation of students, God. I pray that the 10,000 students of the University of Northern Iowa are gonna to come to know your name simply because of the obedience of this group of students, King Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that you're gonna use these students to change the world. We love you so much.